Hello, everyone. Welcome to PR Done and Dunner. Today, we have a special guest, Robin Schaefer of Schaefer AR. Robin is an experienced analyst and influencer relations uh, consultant, and she specializes in program strategy, execution, and value creation. Robin really knows what she's doing. Robin's been at this for three decades and has worked with some of the biggest technology vendors and also startups. I had the great pleasure of working with Robin when she led analyst relations for Nice Systems over five years ago when they were also a Fusion PR client that we reconnected recently on social media when I learned that Robin launched her own AR firm and literally wrote the book, Analysts on Analyst Relations, which you can find at Amazon. Um, welcome, Robin. How are you? I am terrific. How are you, Bob? I'm not doing too bad. Great to speak with you again. Thank you for your time and joining us here. Oh, yeah. It's great to talk to you always. Well, I have a lot of questions. I mean, uh, as you know, Fusion PR practices analyst relations, but we love to compare notes with other experts in, field, experts in the field. And let's face it, this is your specialty. You wrote the book uh, on it, or one of the books. And one of the questions I have is, I mean, one thing we're challenged with at Fusion PR, and I think PR professionals are more generally, is that PR is a misunderstood field. And we're constantly explaining, constantly help our clients and uh, prospects understand what you can do with it and how to solve their problems. But I would think that analyst relations maybe is even more understood, if that's possible. What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I've never really thought about PR as being more or less misunderstood, although analyst relations is plenty misunderstood. <laughs> uh, I am not sure, other than other AR people, that any executive or product marketing person or, uh, you know, spokesperson really understands it and understands the full potential. So like yourself, I'm really uh, always trying to show the value. And I try to show that it's, it's not an, a little nice to have checklist, but it can make a real difference in the business in terms of driving what the business is trying to do and using this analyst uh, channel to do that whether it's briefing them and, you know, and, and making sure they can be a mouthpiece for you or getting insights from them the other way. They, they really have a unique place in the market that uh, smart vendors know how to leverage. Makes a lot of sense, but I think we both know there's a lots of different flavors. And I, I guess it depends on how savvy the client is. I mean, some confuse analysts with, well, are they street analysts, Wall Street analysts versus industry analysts? And even within industry analysts, we know there's different types. I thought it might be good to organize this as kind of countering some common myths and misperceptions and answering some of the types of questions we often get about analyst relations. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great. That's a great idea. All right, let's jump into it. So one question we sometimes hear is, we're a startup. We're not sure if we need or even can afford to pay for analyst relations. Um, what would you say to a startup? And when, would, if they're not ready in the early stages, when, would, when should they be ready to... Uh, such a great and very common question. And I have to say, I love working with startups and scale-ups, the smaller companies that are trying to make their mark in the world that tend to be highly disruptive and want to reach out to, you know, recognize the value of some kind of analyst outreach. They tend to see it in, the, in a narrower perspective in terms of the analyst helping themselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. And analysts can help you get on radars and analysts can help differentiate you. And basically, analysts can bring you to the attention of potential customers. So sure. 
you definitely always want to do that. Um, in addition, I mean, I always look at it as analysts can help you sell, they can help you market because diff some analysts, not all, have a very big mouthpiece. They blog, they're on social, they're really out there. They themselves are the thought leaders and can amplify your brand and your messaging, especially when you align with them and um, they mention you or they mention key concepts that your business depends on. They can help amplify the message. And then the, the, the third area is the inbound side, which I mentioned earlier, is an analyst, a good analyst's ability to hold up a mirror to you and to offer you insights and feedback because a good analyst knows the market, knows the trends, knows the competitors, knows the customers, knows the customer needs, and has a view of it that it's really hard to get otherwise because they really see a full circle and they see what your competitors are doing and they see messages and they have a, a, a great perspective to uh, run messaging by, to get their feedback on that, to look at your product roadmap, try to make sure and improve your product market fit. Uh, they are very influential on investors because the street, as you said, the investors want to know about, about the vendors. And the analysts are a great uh, betting point for them. So being well positioned with the analysts are is very important. And I always tell I'm, I'm, you know, from the old school of don't spend any money unless you have to. I like that. I'm a, I'm a old cheap, cheapskate. <laughs> so um, I like to say to any company, don't spend a penny until you have to. You can get a lot of the value out of working with analysts without spending any money if you know what you're doing. You can get on the radar. You can differentiate yourself. You can start to... Um, build a reputation with them you can get their uh you know align with them on ideas and there's a lot you can do and i always tell a company you know first let's do as much as we can without spending a dime and only spend money on analysts whether it's research uh, subscriptions or special kinds of projects or strategy sessions where you get insight any of those things invest in them when you can show clear roi and you really have hit the wall with the free, and you really uh, need to, to start getting more value. But we always start with the minimum investment. And every company is going to have a different point at which that investment makes sense, depending on basically who their customers are listening to. I see. Because if your customers are listening to the analysts and very engaged with analysts and, and, and see analysts as key influencers, you've got to be there. You've got to get on the radar early, much earlier than, than most companies think. Okay, so there's not a predictable formula like uh, you need one after A round or before you C round. Does it, does it very depend, I guess, on the, the situation? Yeah, I, I would say I would say there are a couple of um, – you've got to have real customers. No okay. analyst cares unless you've got some good customer use cases and ROI. So you've got a great idea. They're not going to buy into it unless until they see it in action. So they definitely want you know you to you to get to that point where you can tell your story and your value in terms of the customers you serve. Makes a lot of sense. 
Okay, here's another objection or concern we often hear. Ah, it's all pay for play. They're coin operated, you're buying protection, you know. Um, how valid is that? That is a very common misperception. And I would say, and I always say, uh, yes, there are analysts that are pay for play. There are analysts that are looking for your dollar, for your vendor dollar to make, uh, buy their kids' shoes, right? It's really important to understand an analyst business model, how they make money in order to judge uh, how coin operated they are. If a, a firm like some of the biggest ones get the majority of their revenue uh, from buyers, right? They advise buyers on, uh. on making buying decisions. They are not going to risk their reputation to align with the vendor, no matter how much money you give them. So those with the buyers have the power in that sense. Now, the majority of analyst firms don't talk to buyers, don't really interact significantly. I mean, they talk to buyers, but they don't influence buyers significantly. Their job is to study the market and study competitors and, and give feedback to vendors, feedback and to help vendors. And there you would find a mix of analysts uh, that maybe pay for play, but the best ones don't do that because they understand that people see right through that in terms of the, the buyers and the market you're trying to reach. If an, anal if an analyst will write a rosy paper about how great you are and wonderful you are, it kills your credibility. That makes it sense. their credibility. Out of those two kinds of analysts, let's say we're a tech startup, we're ready to start spending some money on AR. Uh, which of those two types should we align with or should we sign? Very interesting. Or both? Yeah, really both. You want to get on the radar of the big guys, of Gartner, of Forrester, mm. of IBC. You want to get on the radar, and you can do that without spending any money because – these analysts want to know about what's happening in the market, about up-and-coming vendors, about up-and-coming disruptive ideas. It adds to their value because they're supposed to be the experts on this market. Mm. So if they don't follow what small, small, interesting, innovative vendors are doing, they're falling down on their job because if a, a, somebody's asking their opinion, they have to... Uh, have the credibility and the, and the breadth of knowledge to bring up and know about some of the smaller vendors. If they only know the big ones, the clients kind of say, why am I paying you? I can mm. figure that out myself. Mm. So the clients are often looking for the, uh, the uh, smaller, interesting vendors and looking to analysts to, to say that. Now, that being said, uh, the problem is that they are the most expensive. The so bigger ones? The bigger ones. They tend yeah. to be, you know, the cost tends to be along with their influence. But the real reason you're spending money, you're spending money for two reasons. You're spending money either to get a webinar or a white paper or something that helps you, you know, the demand generation and leading the market, you know, getting out there in the market. So you may be spending money there. But the most significant way you're spending money is to get insight because no analyst for free it's going to give you the, any significant feedback, suggestions, recommendations, um, competitor insights, customer insights. So um, what, they, what they have in the market are the biggest firms, the second tier firms, which have the same model as the big firms, they're just smaller, right? 
um, Omdia and um, 451 and, you know, other firms. There's, there's many firms like that. But then the ones I look for and encourage my clients to work with are the small boutiques in their space. So whether it be somebody who just covers a market that they're in, a geography that they're in, that's maybe, you know, in the Nordics, you know, it's a it's not a common geography. You want to find someone in that geography that's right. what you listen to. Um, or more commonly, they have or or maybe an industry, I'm sorry, they have a specialty in an industry and they cover the relevant um, technologies in that industry, or I think the most common is they have a specialty in a type of technology, right? So they may go across industries, but they are the company that, um, or the firm, or the single analyst that really understands a niche market. So with uh, any company, I look for the big guys that cover their area, but when we want to spend for advisory insight feedback, which is a big part of the value proposition, I always look for a boutique site firm that really understands the market, that can give it to you for a much lower price point, and you can get insights from them. I see. Uh, so do you typically have to choose between a boutique and a big one? Is it Does it make sense to engage one of the majors as well? Or It really depends what you're trying to accomplish, right? So I have um, clients who are struggling to get attention and break out and get their brand known. And they want to go and to whoever has the, the biggest audience, whoever has the biggest mouthpiece, um, mm. and they want to find those kind of vendors, um, vendors that influence revenue greatly in a space. It, it depends on the industry, uh, the space that you're in, but it's going to be the big guys. They're going to influence. So if you're really struggling to get your get leads and get recommendations, it might be a different set of analysts. Is it possible to start small with, uh, and kind of a la carte it with the uh, top firms, or do you have to be ready to- Not usually the top, uh, not that I know of, is Barster and Gartner are just all you can eat expensive, mm. typically. IDC has a model where you can buy um, research in a narrow, field so mm -hmm. in your field you can get the research just within a particular analyst coverage area and that's much more reasonable because you're not getting everything that you maybe you don't need and then a lot of boutique firms a lot of smaller tier two and boutique firms will do the a la carte they'll you know sell you a subscription they'll be happy to sell you a subscription which gives you access to their research and their documents and Sometimes, a lot of times, a, a, a subscription gives you access to analysts. In fact, almost all the time for feedback, advisory, et cetera. But often, without a subscription, you can buy an advisory day or you can buy a white paper. You can buy what you need that is going to drive to the objectives that you've got laid, laid out to you. So it really depends on the firm. With smaller companies, I find... Um, these analyst firms tend to be um, pretty liberal and willing to do things that they wouldn't ask a larger or, or they wouldn't do for a larger firm. That's my experience. I see. Let's say it's a bigger firm and you want to sign with them, but you want to make sure you get enough time with, let's say they have a star analyst who is well-known or associated with a certain area of technology. Yeah. 
can you do that? Or do they just, you're stuck with whatever analysts no. that, uh, I, I never have, I never have, I've identified, sometimes you want to start for star power and it's hard to get to them. And you know, it's, it's, you, you, they'll give you a dates months out or something. And it's, it's more challenging I see. Um, to coordinate with the real stars. Um, but that's not common. It's not common to have someone that's, uh, you know, really that highly, most highly in demand. Okay. Usually when you figure out who are the analysts that are the movers and shakers. So even within a Gartner, they've got, you know, thousand analysts, over a thousand analysts. There may just be uh, one that you want to get to that really knows your market and is influential in your market. They have, they cover all areas. So, um, and often those people are available. So with your subscription, if you're going to spend, it's going to be 60000 or more. And this is not okay. a light spending. That's like the bottom I've ever heard of anybody spending with Gartner. It, um, it uh, gives you usually unlimited access to the research and to the analysts that you want to talk to. So you're getting a lot. And I think Gartner is working on changing their offers and their value propositions for smaller vendors. And I can't speak to that exactly, but that's the traditional way they've worked. Got it. Got it. Okay. Here's the next one. And it's kind of two different versions of the same question. One is, well, they're really not tracking our space. We're doing something so new and different that it doesn't make sense. Or these analysts have us pegged wrong. We spoke with them. They don't get it. They're probably going to put us in the wrong report or they're already putting us in the wrong report, the wrong mm -hmm. quadrant. Should we waste our time with uh, these analysts? And is it better to get a mention in a report, even if it's not the desired uh, placement? That last one is, is uh, we've had hours of debate over that at different vendors, that the idea, if we're going to get into a wave or magic quadrant or a market scape, but we're not going to compete because it's not our market. It's not really our market. Should we try or not? The analyst will tell you, to always be be in any um, report that you can get into, because even if you're in what we consider the, you know, we might consider a bad quadrant, it, it isn't, you know, from their perspective, even lower quadrants just mean it's a more focused vendor that may be perfect for um, a per particular client. So analysts will say, always go for that. An executive will say, I only want to be in it if I'm a leader, right? An executive at, an, a, uh, at a vendor, at a tech vendor. Um, the reality is, uh, I think there's such a uh, perception out there that it's, it's hard to be in the niche, you know, small quadrant and get your goals met. But if you're a small, a, really, a real startup, that nobody's heard of, and then all of a sudden you make a quadrant, even if you're low, that gives you some a lot of visibility you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yeah, it's, it's like uh, what I tell our clients is that one thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. So you want to be there. Um, and you do have a mouth, and you do have a, a voice you can write on your blog if you don't agree with their uh, how they've categorized you or if you want to yeah. qualify to be. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the categorization is super, super interesting because vendors like to create categories. They like to create categories of one. They like to say, we are unique because we offer uh, left-handed octopuses, you know, something. Like they don't um, 
they, they think in terms of pure differentiation. And an analyst is not going to buy that. They're, all, they're going to try, like all human beings, to organize because they have brains that are organized right. in certain ways to put you somewhere. And they, create, they consider themselves the ones that d- define and create categories. So if you think you don't fit, you have to first say, um, is there a real market for what we're trying to sell? Because they're not interested if they're not getting a lot of customer demand for information about that. And are there, is there confusion in the market and the need to evaluate a group of vendors? Because that makes these analysts more valuable. So if it's, they love confusion, right? They love <laughs> markets that aren't clear because they clarify, right? So I've certainly heard my share of tech vendors who have invented this great category of one, and that's never gonna work. So um, it's important to look at, um, you know, when you define yourself to really put it in terms and the analyst concept, the way the analysts think, and then try to move them. like. You can work with the way they're seeing it and then say, well, we're a little bit different here and there and there. But you need to show that in terms of customer value. The customers are really looking for this. And, you know, they're not finding in your research. But this is, you know, how we're doing it. And try to get the analyst to make it the analyst's own idea to create a category. There you go. Um, But it sounds like it makes sense when you're wrestling with positioning your category to go to the analysts. I mean, read the report. They are super helpful. And if you, so first of all, analysts and all of us, I think, really love it when um, we're the sage, you know, we're the one that people are coming to for advice, right? I think- Are they the boring people at the party who they they just like hear themselves talk? (laughs) (laughs) I think they try not to be. And they try to have, you know, interesting opinions. And most of them, I, I have found most of them really are interesting people. Well, this is about going to uh, going to them to un- better understand what you need to do for your positioning and understanding their taxonomy, how they categorize things, how they look at the market. Right. And right. Uh, it seems to make sense to start. Okay, well, why you go to them. All right, so you, can anal- the question you asked was, can analysts help you define a category? There you go. So if you well, ask that- again, I can answer it more intelligently. Well, that is, uh, I mean, that's probably the ultimate if you really think you're breaking ground in a new area to get the analyst to fall in love with that and start kind of blessing it and writing about it. But I guess reading between the lines of what you said, that's not easy and maybe doesn't even make a lot of sense because maybe the vendor's drinking their own Kool-Aid. Um, exactly. But, but that said, maybe there is a way if you're really onto something, there has to be a first to go with it and there might not be a lot of competitors. Still, it might be a good trend in technology worth following. And uh, if you can get them to buy into that, then who knows? Maybe at some point. Uh, yeah, you, know, you, can get, you can get a great thing going if you can work. Because it, it's analyst relations, right? It's about people. It's about working with them, not to say, hey, look at me, look at me. I've got you know, a great thing. But let's look at the customer's challenges and how we can solve them. And the current taxonomy of the way the world looks at technologies is not helping this important set of customers. They're unserved. And if you put it in terms of the market and the customers, and there's a lot of them, and we're coming up with a direction that can serve them better. They may not do an evaluative report because you may be the only one or they may only be a couple, but they'll start covering it. 
they'll start defining it. You can plant seeds and, and, ho and hopefully for you, other vendors follow because you need it to be, have other vendors to be a real market. Okay, so this next question kind of follows from this last one we had. Um, can you just go to an analyst and try to get as much free information as possible? Or when do you have to actually start paying for them? I mean, yeah. I, I'm assuming you can't just uh, try to get everything done through free briefings. Yeah. So, of course, free briefings are an important way to pay, pay, you know, pave uh, analyst awareness and start to get your name out there. And certainly we're going to do that. But then you get to the point where you want that inbound insight because they have that unique perspective we talked about. So um, I, it costs money to get that feedback, but a trick I've learned that um, seems to work because of human nature <laughs> is um, if you have an hour with an analyst or you have 30 minutes with an analyst, I like to do, try to get my spokesperson to, to plan for no more than 45 minutes of content or 22 minutes of content in a 30 minute briefing. Leave space and time for their questions because they'll have intelligent questions, which often reveal um, some insight. But they'll be, there's something about human nature that they'll be likely to give you feedback if you leave the space for it. Um, I wouldn't, you know, knowing that they're not um, supposed to be or, or, or don't owe you that feedback, I mean, it's hard to ask it for it. But if you leave it hanging and plant some, you know, some mm -hmm. seeds to get it, they're, they're, they believe in their own point of view and they like to hear it. And feedback comes out often in places that you're not paying for feedback. Yeah, that makes sense. Plus, we found that often they are maybe a little subtly selling themselves, selling the firm, maybe overtly. Maybe there's an account exec with, from the firm on there. And so I think they prove their value by asking tough questions sometimes or by providing some feedback. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. They want to show that and they consider a lot of these things proof, uh, proof of concepts all, all the time, you know, a lot of the time, you know, having a call with you and they're absolutely trying to sell, sell you. So those are most of the questions on my list. Were there any other questions I should be asking or anything else you can think of that uh, we haven't covered that might be worth including? Yeah, I think, um, I think probably the hardest and most interesting part of building somebody an analyst relations plan is finding the real influencers on the market. So we can make certain assumptions. We know Gartner's and Forrester and IDC have influence and we can pretty much know that. Um, but when you go beyond that and you go, uh, I, I think I, I might have mentioned there's a there was a, a time that I was in a niche market of help, helping a niche customer, really had a niche market, um, find influencers. And we found the big guys that would be interested in them. But there was one guy in North America that owned that market. You would have <laughs> wow. never heard of it. You would have never heard of him. He was a sole proprietor, but in this market, his name was around to anybody looking for that kind of solution and he owned every deal, right? So yeah. finding those guys is really hard. It takes a lot of research, a lot of, uh, you know, asking your customers, a lot of asking partners, a lot of 
getting on and hunting and pecking on Google, you know, to find them. So I think that's probably the most important, difficult, and time-consuming part of uh, executing on an analyst relations plan is just understanding who's influential in the market for your business. And that's why I'd assume they'd hire someone like Robin AR, Robin Schaefer AR. So you can give a, a quick plug for your firm. Tell us a little bit about your firm. You told me you're getting very busy and about your book as well. Just uh... Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I consider myself, I've become a big fish in a small pond, right? Because analyst relations is its area. But by writing the book and, you know, just getting out there and helping people and, um, you know, writing blogs and different things, I, I, you know, I've kind of earned a name for myself, which is very special, That's very great. nice. That's great. Um, and uh, what I found is, I, it's interesting, I started my own business just last year. And my intention was simply to be, you know, a sole consultant. And it seems to have slipped away from me somehow that I'm creating an empire. <laughs> <laughs> I used to say, I don't want an empire. I just want, you know, my own consent. So <laughs> I'm kidding, of course, but as um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of demand um, in companies either that don't have analyst relations and need some help there um, or companies that have existing teams that have capacity problems or need help with certain projects or need help with um, certain things are better done by a third party um, and they want people to come in and help with that. And even the largest teams, I've worked with the largest teams in the world who are always looking to improve and want the advice and perspective of an outsider to give them feedback on what they're doing in the program and how they can improve it. And, you know, you think that these big guys have got it down, but there's kind of room in, the, in most of the cases to improve. Well, that goes to the field being perhaps misunderstood or one that could benefit very much by someone with expertise like yours. So uh, I think we're done, at least for this go around, right? Would you say we're done? I'd say we're, we're done. Well, I'm going to include uh information about Robin Schaefer, how to reach her in the comments section. But meanwhile, we will thank you, Robin, for joining us uh, in this uh, session. My pleasure. And why don't we close out with a Zoom 5, okay? Okay. Zoom 5. <laughs> See you next time. Thanks, Robin. <laughs>